welcome to Data for Future, episode number 39. If you are a long-time follower for our show, you probably recognize this face. We welcome back Juan Luis Cano again. As the very first and the only returning guest, of course, we he's coming back because we we got really good feedback from the last show we had with him, Talk Python to Me. First of all, I get to know Juan as he was teaching me Python from school and every day coming to class with new packages, new good ideas, new cool development in the community. And on the other side, I was very aware he is contributing a lot to the open open source overall Python projects, such as the NumPy, um, SciPy, so on and so forth. On the other side, he works on really cool projects with Python that he launches satellites into the space with Python coding. So with many cool coding and data experience, I'm always a fan of pursuing whatever he is looking into in the field of data. And recently I discovered that he joined a new company, Read.docs, and is focusing on documentation for the open source community, which really triggered my interest in documentation because initially it wasn't the most sexy area that you focus on when you start learning about data science. But as I'm investing getting in, into it more, I think there's a huge importance there and there's a lot to tell. So today, very excited to have you on the show again, Juan, welcome, and to share all your knowledge in this field with us. Thank you very much, Tommy, again for the, for the welcoming. I'm super happy to be here again uh, in the podcast. And yeah, totally, like documentation is something that's very often overlooked from developers and data scientists uh, alike. This is something that technical writers struggle everywhere with, um, but it's way more important than we think as we will be, uh, as we will have the opportunity to discuss. Sounds great. Why don't you start by telling us what is Docs and how did you start joining the company? So Docs is a... Uh, an open source company that offers a hosting documentation service. I say open source company because all the code of the platform is open source, is uploaded to GitHub mm-hmm. and it's uh, public for everybody. Of course, we have some private details like operations and this kind of stuff, but all the code is there. And it's a website that's used for a very large number of projects. Many of them are Python libraries, because the documentation generator that we use, which is called Sphinx, it's very popular among Python packages. Mm-hmm. But there's also lots of R, Java, and other kind of software libraries using that. And it's not only for like uh, code libraries, it can also be used for books or any sort of technical documentation. And what's interesting is that even though we have like tens of millions of page views a month and millions of Unix users a month, uh, we are five people only in the company. Actually, I'm the fifth employee. Just five. Um, yes. And we don't get that, that many support requests, which means that uh, we're doing a really good job at uh, making a product that works. Uh-huh. Um, so in that sense, it's been like... Uh, complete change from what I was doing before because like even if my previous company was not super big like we have we were like 200 employees or so now I've changed to a super small company of five but we support a service that's used by millions so it's uh-huh. a, a little bit scary at times I have to say yes. um, but, but yeah that's... so far so good 
That's very impressive because when I was doing research on Read the Dogs, I see the talk from the CEO. It seems that this the project is touching such a big scale and with millions of users in the back, it's hard to imagine only there are five people supporting the mission overall. Indeed. And another another thing that triggers my interest is as an open source project, how do you finance yourself as a company? So there are two main sources of revenue, or mm -hmm. should I say three? So we are supported by personal donations. This is the smallest one, but the one that makes our proudest uh, because it's individual users that step in to support the projects. Mm -hmm. um, th we also have a corporate or business um, uh, offering. So big companies or smaller companies or whoever wants to host the documentation privately and mm -hmm. have some finer control uh, integration with their uh, internet internal authentication services and things like that. Um, they can pay us for it. And there's mm -hmm. a, a bunch of plans that they can choose. Mm -hmm. And finally, we have uh, an advertisement business as well, which is quite um, unique because it doesn't track users. It only uh, uses contextual advertising. Therefore, uh, we do not know anything about the history of the user or what did they purchase. Uh, one hour ago or things like that uh -huh. and and so it's called ethical advertising because of this interesting this. so a documentation company also touch upon the aspect of advertising as a revenue stream yes yeah and um, in the world of business models i think the more we see the more surprises we get and i want to touch upon all the individual um, donation or supporters and the, the cooperates are they supporting you more for the documentation for software or it also has a lot of projects about data so well there's a very different projects uh, mm -hmm. hosting the platform now um i wouldn't be able to say what is the percentage of it Mm -hmm. But for example, we have lots of data science libraries uh, that are used uh, very widely in the community. Some of them are hosted directly on Read the Docs, and some others uh, are not, but they use the same documentation engine that we use. So we're in touch with a bunch of them to, to host them on Read the Docs or help them improve the documentation. So libraries like Panda, Scikit-Learn, and all of them. They all have like a super customized uh, website and they're not hosted on Treaty Talks, but we have many others uh, that are or that were hosted in the past. Uh -huh. And there's also some um, R libraries, for example, or some biomedical uh, analysis uh, software that are also hosted on Treaty Talks. They're not uh -huh. so oriented towards developers, but not more towards users, for example. Uh -huh. They are not like reusable software libraries, but more like uh -huh. graphical applications and things like that. Uh -huh. Can you give a more in-depth like introduction about how Redox is used when we are developing a project with Python or R, for example? Sure. So Redox is very similar to a continuous integration service. So we give you a, a, an infrastructure so you can automate how the documentation is built. So we support two documentation engines. One is Sphinx, that's the most widely supported one. And okay. we also have MKDocs, which is a kind of newer. And we give you some uh, configuration that you can use. And then 
every time you make a change to your code or some collaborator makes a change to your code, um, there's a new build that triggers and this builds the documentation, creates the website, deploys everything. And so you can browse uh, what the documentation looks like, if all the links are working correctly and this sort of thing. Oh, interesting. So you put basically the note and the documentation together with your coding. And then whenever you update, you update both, you push in your CI process and then it's updated. Exactly. So this is known as docs as code, this docs philosophy. Code. So uh -huh. the idea of putting the documentation of your code exactly where your code lives. Uh, so then you can apply all the ideas from software automation, like continuous integration uh -huh. and, and automated checks and this sort of thing. Um, cool. For us, like we take this for granted, but in the technical writing universe, this has been sort of a revolution because mm -hmm. usually the way people worked or the, the way many people work today is that they usually have like a wiki or mm -hmm. like a Jira site or something like that, or some sort of external uh, place where they edit the documentation, right? For example, but it's me. very hard to yes, <laughs> but it's very hard to keep it up to date with the code itself. So yeah. the, like you always have to struggle with keeping those in sync mm -hmm. and so forth. So if you put the documentation and the code in the same place, uh, there's more chances that you look at it more frequently and that you update it uh, more frequently and so forth. Cool. I think I've heard and seen some people around me using certain packages similar. Are there any other competitions from Redox and why Redox is special? So there's uh, like two levels here because one is what documentation engine uh, projects use. So I said that uh, we support Sphinx and MKDocs, mm -hmm. but there's also many others like uh, all the static site generators like Hugo or, or Jekyll or this sort of thing. Some more documentation engines that are more specific to documentation like Sphinx is, such as Docusaurus or uh, many other ones as well. So mm -hmm. that's like the software area. So what tools are people using to generate their docs or their static sites? And then on the hosting side, uh, I think we are among the few hostings that are um, specialists in documentation, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But there's also people like Netlify, for example, that host any sort of uh, static website and they have a, a wider uh, offering, but it's not so focused on the kind of integrations that we offer, for example, like search or uh, cross links and this sort of thing. Okay, cool. So if we take a one step back, we are talking about how people are using documentation, but how do we, how do we realize like what's, why is it so important for data science projects, for example, to start doing documentation? We know it's been okay for software, software engineer, maybe it's a traditional and a required practice, but for data science, can you further touch on the point like why is it important? So there's, uh, again, like several uh, faces to it. So on one hand, when data scientists are willing to do some sort of analysis, of course, when they are uh, learning, but at any stage in the process, you need to read the docs. Like if you are looking at Pandas or R or whatever, any of the tools you use, uh, you're looking at the docs uh, all the time. 
and and people are looking at the docs for you because if you Google some question and you find some blog post, uh, they're probably wrote it uh, by reading the documentation or they use links there. So, and in fact, um, like when I was preparing this interview, I was like gathering some information and it turns out that, uh, for example, I found one uh, survey by DigitalOcean. It's mm -hmm. a little bit old from 2018, but I think it, it hasn't changed that much. That among the factors that company consider while making business decisions around open source, for example, Mm -hmm. Like the first reason is that the technology is widely adopted. And the second is their documentation, the quality mm -hmm. of the documentation. And this was agreed by almost 50% of the companies. And like this is in general for open source, but for APIs uh, in particular, like which is a narrower scope. Mm -hmm. um, again, I found a couple of surveys by SmartBear and Postman. And documentation happens to be always among the first reason, if not the first reason, for companies and, and individuals to choose what tools do they want. So mm -hmm. even if uh, it's not something that data scientists think a lot uh, or, or software developers, it turns out that it's kind of an invisible infrastructure that we always rely upon, otherwise uh, it, it hinders our capacity to make decisions. Yeah, yeah. I like so, the case you mentioned. I think it really showcased about how documentation, a proper and well-done documentation really enforced the value and the maturity of certain projects and the open source packages, right? But on the yeah. other side, another question coming from me is, as we are working on projects, that is in progress that we're not sure like how mature it is. Maybe we think maybe it's not at the point yet to document yet. And maybe we'll have major upgrade and uh, improvement in the future. How, when should we start with documentation? So I would say that the documentation is the first thing I do in a project. So I, I once read uh, someone describing readme driven development. Okay. Uh, so you write the readme first and then you derive the code from what you're explaining. And mm -hmm. even if I don't follow this philosophy super strictly, I try to stick to it as much as possible, at least by creating the readme first of anything. So try to state why, what are my goals and what I'm going to do with this project and so forth. So approaching documentation early on in the project also makes it more palatable, right? Because otherwise like, having to document a huge process or a huge uh, project at the end stage when the deadline is approaching is something yeah. that uh, nobody enjoys. Uh -huh. So doing it uh, step by step, I think it's a better approach. Okay. And like, even if we discussed already about uh, like reading other people's documentation and also especially about the libraries that we use, I think for projects documenting processes is also super important. Like when you're working in a company, you're also looking for internal documentation all the time, especially now that uh, remote work has uh, become mostly like almost the norm, like in the tech industry, at least. Right. And you're looking at how to do onboarding for new hires, for example. And many companies have like a wiki with some instructions. And there are some steps that have to be followed, like to configure a VPN or to get access to particular systems and so forth. Uh -huh. But also in the middle of a project, 
you need to document like what decisions are you taking or how the data was uh, downloaded in the first place or you know like to uh, leave some trace of some of the things that you are doing around the project that are not necessarily reflected in the code itself how right. to download it how to get up to speed and uh, you know so all these kind of things and you keep all the documentation within the same project repo uh, even though it's not with coding related yes absolutely like i mm -hmm. think that's uh, an advantage as well the good thing about for example in the the uh, documentation generator that we use the most in read the docs which is sphinx is that it allows both having auto-generated documentation. So you have some functions uh, that receive some parameters and so forth. And if mm -hmm. you uh, document them correctly, then everything appears in sort of an API reference for your project. Okay. But it also allows you to have narrative documentation where you can like explain what, uh, what your process looks like and all the things that we discussed. Mm -hmm. So as we talk, there are so many benefits of documentation, but is there on the other side where there's too much information? Yes, that's also a problem. I don't think necessarily having too much information is an issue in itself. I think too much disorganized information is definitely mm. an issue. So, and the thing is that many big documentation projects struggle with this and it's natural because the more information you have, uh, the more challenging it is to to look for stuff. Mm -hmm. In that respect, I'm I'm in touch with uh, uh, Daniele Prochida, which is uh, one person that's very prominent in the Python and documentation community. Mm -hmm. And he devised years ago what he called the documentation framework, now okay. called the Ataxis, because it comes from some uh, ancient Greek word. And he proposes to divide the documentation according to whether if it's technique, um, sorry, like practical or theoretical, mm -hmm. and if it's intended like for learners or for practitioners. So he has okay. like four axes of documentation, and and so it proposes like to organize this uh, according to these rules. And I've started to apply this to some of my projects, and it has improved. The quality of the docs quite uh, noticeably. We will. I will share all these links with you later on. Uh -huh. Do you have on top of your mind like what are the major differences for the four axes? Yes. So, mm -hmm. for example, the first axis that people usually look for are tutorials, which are also the most difficult to write. So tutorials are practical. So mm -hmm. they leave outside like explanations, theoretical introduction, and this kind of thing. And they're for learners. So they're for people that have little to no knowledge uh, about the system, or they already have some knowledge, but they are looking to learn how to do some specific thing. And the, mo the closest metaphor is like uh, uh, teaching a children to cook. This is something that's taken from, from Daniela's talk as well. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting how you frame it in terms of avoiding all the noise and trying to remove craft and unnecessary explanation because right. uh, when you're teaching someone mm -hmm. you are designing like a learning path in a way so mm -hmm. you want them to acquire some skills and so you decide what steps are they going to follow in which order and what are they going to uh, learn in this step although this of course depends on on each each person 
So this is like the, the first quadrant, so to speak. Um, and then again, having a practical uh, orientation, but not so much for learners, but for people that already know how to uh, use the system, there's how-to guides. Okay. So how-to guides are also practical, um, but they are more open-ended. Like they don't have mm -hmm. to be foolproof like a tutorial because you're trying to teach and motivate someone. Mm -hmm. uh, but instead, like they give some instructions about some procedure that's super specific, um, like how to analyze, um, I don't know, uh, large tables with pandas, for example, things okay. like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, they're practical, but as they're more open-ended, people can adapt these how-to guides to the particular use case that they have. So they are not blindly following some steps, but instead adapting that to, to the knowledge that they have and to their conditions. Okay. And then the other two quadrants are more theoretical. So you have uh, explanations. So explanations are more like, to explain how Pandas works, for example, or Pandas internals, or uh, what's the internal design. Um, so these kind of things that are more interesting for people that want to know more about the, the system or the process or whatever, but doesn't necessarily reflect any practical application. It's just for background and, mm -hmm. and things like that. In a dark box. <laughs> yes. And finally, references. So references are, uh, are also like kind of theoretical, mm -hmm. um, but they reflect a list of all the things that you can do or all the different variations and possibilities that you have. So they are nice because uh, you can quickly look what you're looking for, but mm -hmm. they don't explain you how to use them. It's just like, okay, this receives these parameters and produces these other parameters, or this variable name can take all these possible values, or mm -hmm. you know, you have all the list of columns in a data set, so things yeah. like that. So these are like the four quadrants that, uh, that this framework proposes. And I think this way of thinking, like it's helping me a lot in mm -hmm. uh, better organizing the technical documentation. Yeah, I think it's super helpful because first of all, it asks you to consider who is your audience and what's the purpose. So you can see what level of technical language and what level of detail you want to put in it. Definitely good to have that in your mind before you get started. Yeah, exactly. Yet, like thinking about in terms of audiences is super important as well. Yeah. On the other side, like for me, I'm very pretty thought about the project. And if I want to get started today with my, I'm using Jupyter Lab, Jupyter Notebook to experience with my code. How should I just do it? How so does the process work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting question because in fact, and we can touch uh, on this later on if you want. But uh, mm -hmm. as part of some funding that we that we received from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, mm -hmm. which is a US nonprofit. Uh, we're working specifically with scientific and data projects to improve their documentation. And we've mm -hmm. noticed that uh, they make heavy use of Jupyter Notebooks for yeah. documentation. So mm -hmm. um, they, of course, know all the benefits that uh, notebooks have because you can mix the code and the results with some explanations and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that many projects are using them. And luckily, uh, systems like Sphinx uh, you already support uh, using notebooks as documentation. So, for mm -hmm. example, uh, you can have like some 
uh, API reference that's auto-generated from the code and some narrative documentation. And you can use notebooks for examples or for mm -hmm. reports or things like that. And everything is integrated there. So to get started, mm -hmm. uh, there's a bunch of interesting resources. In our own documentation, we host like a few pointers to uh, Sphinx quick start guides and how to get started with the uh, read the docs and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it should be as easy as creating the repository on GitHub or any other uh, version control hosting that you like. We also support Bitbucket and a few others. Mm -hmm. And then signing up in read the docs and creating a first project that gets imported directly from, from GitHub. And you, if you allow like your integration with GitHub, we can know a bit more information about your projects. And as soon as you have it, and if it has like the correct structure and so forth, the first version of the documentation should appear, should appear online after a few minutes. Oh, yeah. So like, given that you follow the steps correctly and that you create the proper scaffolding and directory structure and so forth, uh -huh. uh, we try to make it as easy as possible. Okay, cool. So it's, we read the tutorial and then follow the structure scaffolding and then it will appear as a document. Yes. I will definitely give it a try after, after the talk today. <laughs> On the other side, I was going to ask, um, what, they, what are, since you joined the read the docs, what are some, the coolest project you've touched upon? Like what achievement were you the most proud of? So the interesting thing about my role as developer advocate in, in Read the Docs is that I get to interact a lot with the community. So yeah. there's a lot of uh, talk out there about what developer advocacy means. Mm -hmm. And I found one particular uh, article that I liked a lot. Uh, I'm not a native English speaker. So for me, the, the word advocate didn't immediately ring like a specific meaning. But mm -hmm. it turns out that in the same way that there's animal rights advocates, for example, <laughs> yes. uh, there are also developer advocates. So I try to see myself as someone that listens to the developers and their needs Mm -hmm. And then goes to the company and complains like, hey, our product is not working for this uh -huh. use case, or we should improve this documentation or uh -huh. uh, this sort of thing. Of course, it's also me who ends up improving the documentation. Um, <laughs> but again, uh, like, uh, it's very interesting having this uh, open uh, interaction with the community and getting to know people's needs uh, uh -huh. then uh, very quickly. I'm curious to see, I, I really like the aspect you mentioned, right? You listen the, to the community and then you report it to the decision-making level and say, hey, this is the problem, we need to fix it. This is how we should improve it. On the other side, as I learned in many companies, they also have technical writers who are specifically addressing the issue about documentation and explain technical projects to general users. What are the differences here? So between you mean between technical writers and like a developer advocate like me, for example? Yes. So technical writers are very focused on the act of writing itself, uh, any sort of uh, technical documentation, like for any scientific or engineering field or anything like that. Um, so like technical documentation can be regarded as 
as any form of communication or documentation that's about specialized uh, topics, like not, mm-hmm. not for a general audience. Mm-hmm. And, and so instead, like a developer advocates, it's more like uh, trying to do outreach about the services and the offerings of, of the company, but with a very special focus on developers because I'm not like a marketer or a salesperson. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interacting with the developer community, so to speak, on equal grounds. So I'm also, I also have a background as, as a coder, so I understand very well what are the kind of problems and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, and I interact in the same channels and everything because I talk to people on GitHub issues mm-hmm. and, and project chats and so forth. So it's it's uh, like a mixed role between uh, like a marketer and a communi- like external communications person and so forth, mm-hmm. but a bit more special because it's tailored to to developers and and people like that. Mm-hmm. So the thing is that I'm sort of wearing both hats uh, in the company, even though I'm a, I'm primary a a developer advocate. Developer. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I'm also kind of in charge of the documentation, but it makes it very natural because I'm talking to users and I try to talk a lot with people that have their first experience with the platform and having this fresh look on our docs and everything makes me realize, oh, well, this tutorial is not so clear or well, this was more difficult to find than I expected, you know? Yeah. So I can directly action on that and try to improve our docs and organize things and so forth. Uh-huh. Very cool. And how do you like the transition? Because before you were coding and really using your code to manipulate a physical project that's working in the space versus now you're working on documentation, as you mentioned at the very beginning before the chat is that you don't code anymore. How do you like this career transition? Mm-hmm within the realm of data and Python? So, well, I am enjoying it so much on different levels. Uh, On one hand, like it's super aligned with my personal values, working Mm -hmm. in open source directly as part of my day job and interacting with the community. It's the most exciting thing I've I've ever done. Like I, of course, enjoyed a lot working with satellites uh, for many years and, and very cool software that was doing lots of complicated mathematical abstractions and things mm-hmm. like that. I, I miss a little bit uh, the, the good old times. But on the other hand, like I was always oriented towards making things open and try to reach as much people as possible and uh, yeah, trying to free the knowledge, you know? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I think working in open source in general, but in particular documentation and also with this broad view of trying to impact as many projects as possible, not just one particular project, um, is being super interesting uh, for mm-hmm. me. I saw before joining the company a talk by uh, one of Docs co-founders, Eric Holscher, mm-hmm. that was titled Documentation as Empathy. Mm. And I found it super interesting Uh, to think about it that way because writing documentation is a lot about 
trying to be in other people's shoes and right. try to understand how they're going to view your product and what difficulties they're going to find, you know? Uh-huh. And I think the more empathy you have, the better you <laughs> documentation you can write. Uh-huh. Um, because it, it's a difficult exercise to try to anticipate uh, all these things. Yeah, thinking uh, about people. So yeah, shoes. like I'm, I'm looking at it in that way and I'm enjoying it so much. Mm-hmm. And please do share and, that with us as well the, yes, the yes talk. I will. Mm-hmm. and and in particular as i'm working with scientific projects like with uh, with a focus on that i feel i'm applying with a, a, a lot of things that i've been studying for for a long time because i've been a user of read the docs for many years like i mm. i started using read the docs for my own scientific projects this uh, open source library for astrodynamics and orbital mechanics that have been developing for nearly eight years now. Right. And as soon as I discovered Read the Docs, I wanted to have my documentation there. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, I worked with them because I had some special requirements for my documentation because it was written in Python and Fortran and MATLAB. So like my project was a mess early on. <laughs> okay. And this was not uh, directly supported uh, because they were like they had a narrower focus and since conda was created and then conda started to be supported on read the docs and so forth i was able to move my docs there and i've been always like pushing what's possible in terms of scientific documentation uh, from my open source uh, life right so first mm-hmm. i started with this then i started using notebooks for how to guides a lot these notebooks uh, started including three-dimensional plots that were interactive, so you could rotate them and so forth. And mm-hmm. getting this to work in a static website was super difficult because we had to coordinate like three or four projects to kind of do the right thing. Oh, wow. And, and then finally, uh, I like very lately, we have migrated to a markup language that's called Markdown, which is the most probably the most widely used uh, markup language out there mm-hmm. and because because it was not the language that we were originally using in our docs and we also think that this has opened up possibilities for many other people to contribute to our mm-hmm. documentation and this was also a struggle uh, early on so yeah like before joining read the docs i was already caring a lot about documentation and outreach and mm-hmm. and so joining here has been like uh in a way like a dream come true even if it was kind mm-hmm. of unexpected at the beginning <laughs> super cool as some user who were originally benefited so much from the company now you turn to the other side as a contributor to help even more people which is very 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 cool situation to be in and i also really like your comment about the writing documentation as an empathy I think it's so true, like being in working on any project, um, data, data science or software is always more sexy to code and solve your problem with your like sophisticated thoughts. But in the end, whenever if you want to grow the project be bigger or you want to pass it on to other people or other people need to fix some bugs, collaboration, it's always such a headache to take over the project if the documentation is not done well. It's, in some way, it can be a torture 
because yeah. you just read through lines. The logic is very clear in your head, in your head, but in other people's head is like they don't know what you're thinking about. So yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I really admire your passion about the open source community and your contribution as um like as data data scientists, data analysts, we benefit a lot from the open source packages, the ones we use day to day, Panda, Scikit-Learn, and to more specific packages. I think the open source now turns out to be many times the best solution for solving problems. And where do you see open sources growing into in the next one or five years? What's your vision? Yeah, that's a super interesting question. I think now we are starting to have real conversations about open source sustainability because sustainability. for the past mm -hmm. 20 years, like open source was regarded as some code that someone in a basement uh, is doing on Sundays or when their children are asleep or things like that. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case anymore. So companies are producing open source because open source is a channel. Right? It's mm -hmm. a way to attract clients to some platform or to some paid product or things like that. And mm -hmm. there's many, many business models built around this, even though open source is not like a business model in itself. Um, as uh, Manrique from uh, Vitergia company knows, they, they're like a very famous Madrid company that uh, studies a lot of open source things. Mm -hmm. And... So I think now there's a we new conversation about how to sustain open source because what usually happens is that there's many systems that depend on some library that's developed by one single person that doesn't have any income apart from their day job or whatever. Mm -hmm. And this has already caused some problems in the recent past. So now we see more foundations that give funding to open source we, get, we see companies that have business models around open source, but also that they have a more structured way of, of channeling donations. Mm -hmm. uh, we see initiatives like Open Collective, for example, which is a way of having like a very easy uh, structure to receive this sort of money and have some accountability uh, to external donors and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think in the next five years or so, open source will become something that you don't need to do during the evenings or on Sundays or things like that. And more like something that you can do on your normal working hours and, and not being consumed by it in any way, because this also bias uh, the kind of people that works in open source, right? Like yeah. I'm a mm -hmm. white privileged male uh, that speaks good English and so forth. And, and that is like the perfect conditions to do a lot of stuff on my, on my free time. I'm, I'm not uh, like having to care about uh, children or, or elder parents or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, and it's unfortunate that women in particular, but many other underrepresented groups uh, have been historically struggling to get into open source. And in mm -hmm. the next five years, I would also love to see some real change on that front. We are already seeing some improvements there. So, uh, for example, there's like more 
uh, women in, in data science projects that are open mm -hmm. source, more women in infrastructure libraries like open, like NumPy and, and Pandas and Jupyter and so forth. Um, but yeah, I would also love to see that in the long tail, you know, mm -hmm. of open source projects, not only the more visible ones yeah. and, and things like that. Yeah. So yeah, diversity in open source is like a, a whole other uh, conversation, I think. Yeah, the aspect of sustainable open source and the diversity in open source, they are both super, super important. As I recently watched this documentary called Code Advice, we understand yeah. the diversity of the code contributors really matters a lot to the output. And it, it will be a huge in step forward for us. And, and I think it affects a lot what we data scientists and people working in artificial intelligence do, right? We've seen lots mm -hmm. of conversation about uh, like algorithms, uh, misdetecting uh, people of color, for example, as criminals or things like that, uh, mm -hmm. just because uh, they're people of color or uh, like vision systems that don't work properly uh, with uh, Asians or again, mm -hmm. uh, black people or things like that. So having a more diverse pool of contributors to open source and a more diverse uh, workplace uh, is essential for making AI and data products uh, really work for everyone and not for, for a minority. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that really wraps up the conversation on a very long-term projection, a good note. Is there anything else you would like to share before we close the conversation? Yes, that uh, I've been uh, looking into applying data analysis to documentation. So for example, mm -hmm. in ethical ads, we're starting to do like keyword detection and this sort of thing to have better ads for our publishers and of course, increase their revenue and so forth. So this is some active area we're working on at the moment. And also on a smaller note, um, since I joined Read the Docs, like I started using the platform uh, more as an expert user, mm -hmm. and and in my particular case, I found that uh, well, like Read the Docs offers some analytics, some basic analytics on what what people search for in my documentation, oh, and yeah. it was very funny because one month ago I discovered that the most searched term gave zero results. <laughs> What and this it? was super interesting because like people were approaching this uh, orbital mechanics library to mm -hmm. solve one particular set of problems and mm -hmm. they found zero mentions of it in our documentation and this happens like every week every month and so this was also like super interesting to to understand what people are looking for when they approach your project and so forth it's it's kind of open it's like an open loop feedback, uh -huh. right? Because uh -huh. I'm not sitting next to someone and then they tell me what they're looking for. But it's, it's interesting to apply everything we know about data science, analytics, and so forth to improve our docs and make them more useful for the people that read them and so forth. So I think this is a super interesting area that I would love to explore more in the near future. That is very interesting. It's almost like improving the SEO or keyword accuracy for your documentation. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Since you mentioned a little bit more about the advertising project that Red Doc is doing, 
how are you ensuring the ads are ethical? Well, they're ethical in the sense that they don't track the users. So they don't do what they call a micro segmentation or things like that, because that's mm -hmm. how most of the ethical business are doing now, right? Uh, like they mm -hmm. know that you're a woman that lives in Barcelona and that you were looking for certain kinds of products in Amazon last week. And mm -hmm. so they present you with the targeted ads, mm -hmm. which is kind of an invasion of privacy. And so what we do in technical, in ethical ads is that we don't care about the users themselves, only like very broad uh, geographical areas that we use mm -hmm. for targeting. Like, okay, I, can, I want to put a campaign in, in Europe or in the US or things like that. But apart from that, we think that if you're reading a documentation on washing machines, then it's natural <laughs> that you find an ad on washing machines. Okay. And, but on the other hand, if you're uh, watching your favorite music on YouTube and you get an ad on washing machines, it's like the old TV. So like, <laughs> it's getting as annoying as TV used to be years ago, mm -hmm. but uh, a little bit more, right? So yeah, yeah. we're trying to change that and make the, the ads more relevant to the context of what okay. you're reading, not the context of who you are. That's uh -huh. why we call them ethical. Okay, cool. So you remove the filter bubble about the general general text that social media and those big texts are putting on us, your age, gender, your interest, which posts have you looked, but rather instead you're really focusing on the content to give them related info. Yes, and, and silly things like the ads are small and they don't flash and they don't invade the content that you're using, you know, because uh -huh. yeah, yeah. I think many people are browsing these days with an ad blocker of some sort right. or, and, and the reason for this is that people don't want to see the ads because they are annoying. So uh -huh. in that sense, like uh, marketing advertisement and even uh, machine learning in this regard are failing the users because mm -hmm. the promise of seeing relevant ads is not holding up so we also think that there's uh, something that can be done about it yeah people are starting getting tired of it very cool very cool i'm glad read the dog is diversifying his business model and doing many cool projects and taking advantage of the power of documentation so thank you very much for sharing all this, your work, your experience, everything about open source and documentation with us. I think it's a lot of knowledge to absorb. And from my side, at least I will start practicing to be a better documenter and develop more empathy for people who use my code <laughs> in my team, at least to start. Great to know. Yeah. yeah, thanks a lot for for having me. It was a pleasure as always, and looking forward to to collaborating more with uh, data people on improving docs. For sure, for sure. And uh, last but not least, can you share how can people approach you? So I now I came back to Twitter. And <laughs> I'm I'm trying to stay outside of uh, spicy things and tweeting more about documentation, science, and the intersection of that. Mm -hmm. So you can reach me out at twitter.com slash Juan Luis Back. Back, okay. And, and as always, I'm very active on, on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. uh, like uh, sharing articles and, and commenting in other people's posts and so forth. So you can find me with as Juan Luis Cano Rodriguez on LinkedIn. 
Perfect. We'll definitely have people reach out to you through Twitter and the LinkedIn. And thank you again, Juan. We'll see you in a future episode, probably. Thank you so much. <laughs> For more collaboration. Thank you.